0: Well, friends, before we start this off, I thought it might be useful to give you an idea of why we're doing it and why we think it's important for you to be here. I'm with Paul Ehrlich, a close colleague and old friend, and I thought we'd share a moment or two with you talking about why this is a rich campus in terms of its biological heritage and why it's important that people who come to this campus for any sort of reason have an opportunity to view that richness.
1: Paul? Of course, Stanford campus is huge. It was Leland Stanford's farm. And we have some quite natural areas, at least as natural as they get in the Bay Area on campus, like the Jasper Ridge Biological Reserve. But there's a lot of interesting biology on the campus and a lot of interesting policy problems connected with just how we handle the biology on campus. This campus
0: obviously exists for a set of educational purposes, but part of the educational purpose we serve is to teach people about the natural world and about the way in which we've managed on this campus in particular to integrate the natural world in a sustainable way with a building program that has to satisfy the research ambitions and the intellectual ambitions and the teaching ambitions of this faculty.
1: Yeah, I can give you a couple examples of the kinds of conflicts we have to deal with in trying to do that. Every few years, we have an outbreak of caterpillars of a moth that attacks the oak trees around here. And they're a genuine pain because you're walking through clouds of caterpillars. And I love having a dozen caterpillars crawling down my neck, but other people don't like that. But what do you do about it? And of course, one of the things that automatically comes up, well, we're going to spray the hell out of them with some nasty pesticide. But we don't want them doing that around the biology building where we have in culture a lot of different organisms where their behavior or their very lives will be changed by pesticides. So we have to use other techniques. Another problem is that we teach a bird biology class and we have a wonderful time with the scrub jays and the acorn woodpeckers and just generally looking at birds on campus. But we could have a lot more birds on campus if we had more undergrowth along Palm Drive. Why don't we have more undergrowth along Palm Drive for the safety of our students? You know, attacks occur very commonly in areas where there's a lot of undergrowth, and so Stanford has to keep the undergrowth cleared away more than we would like if our only concern was the kind of biology we have on campus.
0: So the trick is how do we meld those concerns for the safety of students and for the teaching capacity and the research capacity of our faculty with the objective of maintaining as much of nature and as sustainable a picture of nature-human interactions uh, as we possibly can. And Paul just gave a wonderful example of the case of dealing with pests by getting rid of them for a while. When Paul and I were first here, the cliff swallows that nest underneath the eaves in the inner quad and the outer quad were being hosed down uh, by the buildings and grounds people because people didn't like to walk into the inner quad dancing over a little patch or two of bird excrement. Well, we finally decided, fortunately, that people really enjoyed seeing the birds in some kind of relationship to the Stanford physical environment and didn't really mind the mess occasionally and that it gave them something else to see. So we'll be pointing out as we go around in this podcast, various places in the campus where you see that kind of solution to problems in which there's some preservation of nature and there's some other kinds of institutional interests and they get
1: resolved. Now, let me just say one of the reasons I'm so happy to be at Stanford, I've been on the faculty for 50 years now, uh, a year more than Don, is that we do so much better job of this than many of the minor universities in the country. If you should go to some place like the University of California at Berkeley or Harvard or something, you'll find not only is the intellectual level lower, but they have less biodiversity. (laughs) So we do a really good job here.
0: Fortunately, some of the people who are most careful about maintaining Stanford's quality are people who've been inspired by the natural beauty of the campus and the organisms that inhabit it. Where else do you find a New Guinean sculpture garden? Where else do you find a falcon in a law school? Where else do you find uh, various sculptures that in effect bring people into contact with natural life? Science art is an important way of relating the artistic impulse to science through looking at examples of fine visual art that's done with a science lens and looked at that way by people
1: who observe it. Well, you know, we've been very lucky, among other things, to have Daryl Way on campus. because She has done so much wonderful science art, particularly with birds, You hardly can go around campus any time without seeing a display of her stuff in the faculty club or in the biology library. Stanford does a really nice job of having images around of the kind of world that all of us would like to live in. Don and I have been in a, a thing called the Millennium Assessment of Human Behavior. We think it's time that humanity as a whole got together and asked questions like what are people for and how do they relate to nature and this is something that Involves more the social sciences and the humanities than it involves the hard scientists. In other words, the hard, sci- the natural scientists know which direction the world is going, but it's up to the social scientists and the people in the humanities to help change that direction. And uh, one of the ways to do that is with science art. And if you don't believe that art can help change the direction the world is going, think of that very first picture of Earth from the moon, which was real art and dramatically change the attitudes of humanity towards the planet and towards the environment.
0: Absolutely, and of course, uh, in Paleolithic times, some of the most extraordinary and meaningful sculptures or images that were drawn on cave walls exhibited features of the relationship between the humans that painted them or sculpted them and the environments, the ecology uh, in which they lived. And so art then becomes a vehicle for understanding a particular dimension of human relationship to
1: nature. And if you really care about the Paleolithic, just come to Stanford and study the administration.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Paul, don't go there. (laughs) uh, Just in time. Here here are our collaborators, Catherine Preston and Daryl Way. We'll hear Catherine describe some of the more striking trees and plants along our route. Catherine's a plant ecologist and associate director of the program in human biology, who studies California native plants, including those we eat. We'll also hear Daryl Way, an artist and writer with whom I co-authored a 2008 project on science art. She coordinated this project and prepared the bird and art portions. We'd like to thank Stanford's Institute for Creativity and the Arts for supporting portions of this project and the academic technology lab, especially its manager, Kimberly Hayworth, for technical guidance and equipment. And of course, we want to thank our colleagues who provided such valuable and insightful comments on understanding and preserving the biological and artistic heritage of our campus. Before we start, I'd like to say something about the production of this podcast. It's our hope that it encourages others to create guided nature walks podcasts and wherever appropriate to include outdoor art as viewed through both a culture lens and a science lens. You'll notice that the audio is roughly hewn. We have traded the seamless illusion expected from studios using elaborate equipment with the use of on-site portable equipment that allowed some spontaneous dialogues and minimized the time requirement of participating faculty and staff. We hope you will excuse the occasional sound of construction In fact, the presence of occasional construction sound is part of the message because one of the things we're trying to illustrate here is that nature and sustainability are under constant challenge in an expanding campus that does so much research and so much teaching. We used a $150 four-ounce handheld digital recorder and open-source editing software thus other schools or nature centers or chapters of nonprofit nature organizations or parks or sculpture gardens or even businesses located within a campus setting could create podcasts somewhat like this one they too can call attention to their local biological heritage and the responsibility of their community to sustain it i should note that in our case the academic technology lab ran our files through a program called peak which refined the digital files While this improved sound quality, it's not a requirement. I'd also note that we worked with the Academic Technology Lab to provide a production guideline that can be downloaded along with this podcast.